Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. And it, it is good. It's, it's good to be here. It's, uh, it's wonderful, really, how um, we can be here in goodwill like this. You know, how we can come together and, and, and take a breath and, and feel the goodwill in the Buddha Hall and, uh, and share that. Uh, breathing it in, just do it. And, and, and reflecting it as you breathe it out. It's amazing. Uh, I think every meditation begins with this intention, right? To muster goodwill. I think every time we come to the temple, it's, it's basically the same idea. I used to say I could never guess. Uh, I wouldn't even want to speculate on what people are thinking when they come to the temple. You know, I'd be on door duty, for example, the greeter, uh, looking at people coming across the parking lot. And just no idea. I mean, it could be wildly diverse, uh, disparate intentions, feelings, reasons why you show up on a given Sunday morning. Unlike that moment when you're getting outside, I used to always say, I know what's the one common thought then, maybe you do too. It's actually warmer out here. <laughs> now that, that maybe you don't get, because that's, that's like especially the old town uh, on College Street. Because I, I, I used to you know, live there many winters, I lived there for several years, and, uh, and sometimes it was pretty cold, really, it was pretty cold. I, I had a, a room, a cell, and it kind of stuck out uh, from the, the far back corner top. So all but one wall, even the floor, they were all outside walls. But one morning there was a thin film of ice over the water in my bedside table. It's fine with me. I mean, I, I used to do alpine mountaineering and uh, winter camping. I walked across Lake Winnipeg uh, three years in a row, sometimes super cold, right? And I still own these technical garments, right? So I, I, they were ideal for temple living. Uh, retreats, mornings generally, you know, I had the gear. It was great. <laughs> but still, uh, coming here for a few more years and greeting people in this sangha, this congregation, are gathering together. Now I really believe that we come with this shared wish to feel goodwill. And I want to recognize this again. Take a few deep breaths, really. Just do it. Feel this. And uh, let it Go through your whole body. You breathe in the goodwill, you breathe out the goodwill. It's worth it. Exercise, amen. Goodwill is kind of a precursor, I think, to what the Buddha was saying. Was that it's kind of like a vessel for enlightenment. And this vessel for enlightenment, he described as having seven factors, seven compartments. They were, by his definition, mindfulness, investigation, Energy, enjoyment, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. Line all seven up, and baby, you got me. Uh, and I think the last four qualities, they, they kind of follow from the first three, follow on their heels. Uh, you know, mindfulness, the first one might be described as just remembering. Buddhist sense of mindfulness, holding something in mind. Remember whatever is needed for long-term happiness for you. And uh, investigation is being alert, you know, paying attention to where this factor that you're paying attention to, this thing you're trying to remember is showing up. And 
energy is being ardent in the cultivation of this. So if you got that, if you're mindful, if you're attentive, and if you're ardent, energetic, probably the other four, the enjoyment, peace of mind, the focus, and the equanimity will follow. And uh, I think this maybe sounds pretty pragmatic, right? Not very religious uh, or supernatural, certainly, as a viewpoint, but it's not an unspirited uh, way of looking at enlightenment. But the thing is, you know, it's all about, I think, the main project, what, when I do it, leads to long-term happiness. That's it in a nutshell. All right. But the thing is, I'm not going to say any more about it, because I don't actually know anything about enlightenment. And I, I, and, and I don't know if anybody does, in my experience. So that's not the end of my talk. That, that, that's actually not even the beginning. Because what I want to talk about is the things that I do have considerable experience and expertise in. And those are what the Buddha called the five hindrances to enlightenment. These are the factors that work against enlightenment. And it would be nice to contemplate the, the components, the, the compartments in which our vessel of enlightenment can sail. But this is my Dharma talk, and my lifelong DIY has been in hindrances. So the top five hindrances will be the topic. DIY, do it yourself, and uh, I'm your man. Uh, in fact, the, the Buddha's uh, terms of enlightenment, to me, it, it, it's so... I'm so fundamentally hindered from them that out of the five, there's at least one uh, desire for sensual pleasure, maybe two, depending on how you think about doubt, that, that I can't really for sure even agree are hindrances to well-being. And the other three, well, let's just say I, I face some serious challenges. With the possible exception of one, that's typically second uh, to the top, ill will or enmity, I don't walk around in an angry state. I, I might just be too lazy, right? Uh, or I'm just too preoccupied with being self-kindly and nice to myself. But I'm not, I'm not mad, you know? So that one, okay. Uh, uh, I, I'm okay with that. I'll talk a bit more about that later. The, the other five, as I say, I got, I got uh, the other four, I got serious challenges. But the, 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 the thing is, the, there's this great German playwright, Bertolt Brecht, and he said that no one is so bad that they can't serve as a good example. <laughs> So I'm a good example. I, I'm a good subject for this Dharma talk on the five hindrances. Sensual pleasure, ill will, anxiety, sleepiness, and doubt. Sensual pleasure, ill will, anxiety, drowsiness, and doubt. That's the five welcome to my world. <laughs> Sensual pleasure, for example, is the top of the list, right? Uh, and, and, and firstly for me, too. I have long argued for a little wiggle room with sensual pleasure, right? When I was young, in the 60s, I, I was a fairly successful guitarist. <laughs> and what me and my generation felt entitled to, some are born to sweet delight. Uh, sex and drugs, for example. I mean, it astounds me and embarrasses me. Now, I'm a grandfather of two girls. I mean, <laughs> I'm an elder at the temple. I mean, really. Uh, you know, Canada made marijuana legal on October 17th, the past month. And I have, I have spoken out publicly against the government on this. Not that I think that smoking pot should be a crime. 
I just don't, I'm just not comfortable with there being more pot stores than McDonald's and Starbucks combined, like in Vancouver. It's probably more now. It's kind of ironic for me, because uh, for one thing, October 17th, it was kind of a personal thing. It was the 48th anniversary of the night when I got busted for possession of pot. 48 years, October 17th. And that was the year after my first love in in a park, right? And be-ins and love-ins were my, my, my uh, routines in those days when I was a kid. I had a bad trip on acid. Yeah, yeah, back then. <laughs> I'm not even gonna talk about how long it lasted. Okay, no, don't ask. <laughs> so now, when, when I seriously argue for this wiggle room around feeling sensual pleasure, it's not a difference I'm making between how some are born to sweet delight and some are born to endless night. My main point now is that what's a hindrance is not the pleasure itself, not even the desire for pleasure. I mean, you, if you didn't feel desire for something, you wouldn't be able to get yourself out of bed in the morning, and let alone be ardent in cultivating those factors of enlightenment. The problem, I keep saying, it's you're grasping for it, you're craving for it this fixation on the ego gratification of sensual pleasures. Blake, who I just now quoted on being born to sweet delight and endless night, or maybe I was quoting Jim Morrison, but he was quoting William Blake. And Blake also wrote, he who binds to himself the joy doth the winged life destroy, but he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. I, kind of, I was looking for a quote, I can't remember where I read it, uh, but, but it's real. Blake worked shoulder to shoulder with uh, his wife, a lifetime partner, and, and she was asked to, to comment on, on this, and, 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 and she's actually quoted as saying, I actually don't hear much from Mr. Blake, he seems to spend all of his days in paradise. <laughs> so don't ask an enlightened person's wife or husband, you know, what they're, where they're coming from. So if you want to preserve your, you know, your viewpoint anyway, uh, you know, of their perfection. But, you know, even with this sort of wiggle room I'm arguing for, it, that it's about grasping and clinging, ego gratification, not about sensual uh, uh, pleasure and the desire for it, I'd have to say that even after making that distinction, my own uh, youthful wriggling did not lead to making me a happier person. I mean, what about addictions? Right? I mean, that longing for pleasure, the fact is, longing for pleasure and avoiding pain with pleasure, they're basic to getting and staying addicted. And that's a huge source of unhappiness for people, and it's a scourge on this over-consumed, terribly exploited planet. I can't in good conscience advocate for anything that feeds addiction even when it turns potheads into taxpayers instead of criminals. Still, it's dangerous. Ultimately, maybe we don't have a choice. I mean, the desire for pleasure is a basic human trait. It evolved millions of years ago, right along with our central nervous system. The central nervous system of vertebrates is 600 million years in evolution. Pleasure and its functionality and compelling evolution has been part of it for long before us, and it's certainly deeply embedded in us as a species. You repress this kind of thing at your peril. But now I say, why 
not, instead of repressing such desire, why not gently suppress it and redirect it? Find the pleasures that come from inside. Enjoyment that doesn't do harm to anyone else. For example, in this goodwill, in this meditation we do, feeling that through the whole body, directed the energy of the breath, like we do every morning. Mustering goodwill, breathing through the whole body this way. Your meditation practice doesn't hurt anybody. Unlike the sensual pleasures, it takes nothing away, right? It's wholesome. It makes you a better person in a way that's not greedy, not selfish. There is a higher and deeper pleasure here, a truly gratifying kind of pleasure that doesn't come from superficial sensory experiences. This is spiritual pleasure, right? That's a real thing. So why not feel good this way? When you come to the temple, or anyway, when you sit down and meditate, why not let your natural inclination to pleasure being a way of taking care and a source of nourishment? You can play with the breath. You can investigate what right now gives you the most satisfying, the most fulfilling breath. Adjust it as it goes along, a long breath, a short breath, direct it into one place or another, wherever feels good, needs the nourishment, shallowly or deeply, whatever works, right? You can play with it. You can learn how to enjoy it more and more, and then it's always there, right? It's free, it's yours. It's, it's always available. It takes nothing from anybody else. It makes you more skillful, in fact, and helpful in difficult circumstances. You're turning a hindrance into a force of good. Now I'll talk about ill will, the second thing. Because what's interesting to me, like it's not a huge issue as I said for me. But when I was thinking about this talk, I was thinking, well, my experience has changed over the years. Right? It wasn't always not an issue for me. And, and as you can see, there's no genetic advantage here. I can't say, well, my parents were happy, therefore, you know, they were peaceful, therefore I'm happy. <laughs> no, no, my mother was so angry about the Russian Revolution, just never mind, for like for 90 years. And so uh, uh, it's, it's not that I am genetically predisposed to have no ill will, or that my life has suddenly or even gradually uh, stopped uh, presenting me with annoying situations and terribly frustrating people. No, no, not at all. I used to suffer from all that. And what I'm saying is it's actually just changed gradually. I sort of forgot how this happened. But when I was thinking about this talk, I was thinking, I didn't go and ask my very excellent ex-wife, but she would be the person to talk to here. I was thinking I used to be pretty angry. You know, I used to feel it. I used to uh, lose my temper and such. And gradually, it's gone away. Uh, not completely, but over the years, the innate curiosity and whatever good humor I'm blessed with has just kind of taken over, kind of supplanted it. And uh, like I say, I more or less forgot, but if I think about it, yeah, it was there and it's not anymore, and good riddance to it. I mean, mostly it was about fear anyway, and who needs it? I mean, let it go, right? Let it be if you can. I mean, 25 years of Buddhist practice maybe had a lot to do with it. I do the meta practice midday for years and years. And, you know, uh, and, 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 and all of what we do here over the years probably is the main thing. But I can't point to a control me, you know, the group of other me that didn't do this and scientifically say for sure it's the meditation. But yeah, I mean, 
it seems to be most likely a reason for a lot of the, you know, sense of freedom from that that I enjoy. Oh well, so how'd it go? Over 25 years or whatever, <laughs> better late than never. But who was it? Woody Allen, I think, he said that my family doesn't get angry, we just grow a tumor. <laughs> I'd like to think that one day I'll look back on anxiety as a thing of the past, like I can on enmity and, and anger now. But I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot to be anxious about in this world. And as human beings, you know, we're by nature nervous animals. And we'd make very poor pets, right? I mean, worse than ferrets, right? We're, we're, we're not visited by extraterrestrials probably just because, like, we're no fun. Like, we're really no fun. And probably uh, tasting like adrenaline and cortisol, we're very bitter. And, uh, and, and, and that's not good. And so, so that's what we're like. And, uh, uh, and I don't know, therefore, will I ever get over this hindrance of anxiety. I'd like to, though. Because it's, it's mostly a complete waste, right? It's a complete waste of time. Uh, it was Mark Twain, he said. Uh, My life has been a series of terrible catastrophes, most of which never occurred. <laughs> so rational justification for 95% of what I worry about, it's just not there, right? I'm just pumping my body with that, that cortisol and adrenaline, those stress-related chemicals, to no avail, for no good reason. It's bad. Our hunter-gatherer ancestors, 97% of our history as a species, we were hunter-gatherers uh, long before cultivation of agriculture and civilization, you know, for, for, for millennia. And according to evolutionary psychologists, we were terrible warriors. We lived in a state of fear and, and quite a bit of aggression all the time. And, you know, this paranoia that's programmed in us, it, it worked then probably. And for any creature whose main concern is surviving just to pass on genes for the next generation, fine. But if your main goal is to be happy and to make the world a more loving and peaceful place, it's not fine, it's a hindrance. So this, this hindrance is, is, is it's historically well-founded, it's biologically embedded, but it's a hindrance and it's wearing me out. And I would like to let it go, right? anxiety, fear. But that's it. Now sleepiness, like, so what's wearing me out and what's the effect, what's the cause? Uh, drowsiness, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the sutras call it sloth and torpor. It's definitely a hindrance and I feel utterly helpless in my experience of torpor, even the word I start going down. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and yeah, is it a, a, a hindrance to enlightenment? Sure. I mean, we're talking about the opposite of an awakened state. It's a sleepy state. A total lack of energy. There's no ardency here. Not, not whatsoever. No enjoyment. No curiosity. I can't concentrate. These are the factors of enlightenment. Too sleepy to muster them. I read a page. Then I start again, because I can't remember a single thing. I read it again, third time, still. I can't remember what was on it, because I was too sleepy reading it. Don't expect me to accept this with equanimity. I don't like it. I stumble <laughs> around midday. Most days I'm in a torpor, stupor. I'm so stupidly tired I might as well have the flu. It's a bad state. There are techniques in the Buddhist teachings, right? The meditation teachers will tell you, like when you're sitting in meditation and you can't stay awake, uh, do you ever feel yourself jerk like that, right? When you, 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 I do that all the time, I'm embarrassed. 
Uh, you know, I read that, that that full body twitch like that, that's actually very primal. I mean, literally primal. Our, our primate ancestors experienced it. They slept in trees, right? And they were grabbing to uh, grab the branch because the wind was going down. Right? So when, you, when you're driving down the road and you know, is that a truck, is that a deer, you wake up like that. That, that twitch like that, when I was a musician and, and, and playing, I used to drive super tired late at night from gigs all the time. You know, how I survived. But I was twitching like a monkey like that. And so when you see me here doing that, you know, I'm, you're, you're meditating with a guy who's enlightened as a squirrel monkey or a marmoset. I'm not very proud of him, <laughs> but that's the experience of torpor, right? And, you know, the meditation teacher's going to roll your eyes back, right? I'm make fun of this. Maybe it works for people. Change your breath to something harder. Maybe imagine your breath bouncing off a hard surface. Cognitive tools are encouraged, like talking yourself out of drowsiness, right? Find ways to think about things that wake you up. And I've tried all this over the years, and good luck to you, but it's done nothing for my general uh, ability to do this. I mean, it's going to be lifestyle things. Uh, you know, I should take a nap in the afternoon. I, I, when I deliberately aim to do so, it doesn't work for me. And yet, you know, on the subway, Sir, is that your book you dropped? <laughs> yes, thank you very much. <laughs> okay, or at the Shavasana at the end of yoga class. I'm, I'm just not gonna fight. <laughs> I, I'm there, the next class starts, I'm still there, you know. <laughs> I just start again. Uh, you know, I used to feel like I had some kind of enlightenment moment after all that good exercise. <laughs> uh, yeah, I should sleep better at night too. I should sleep better. The time I spend in bed should be more comfortable, right? I should have pleasant dreams, right? We can go back now, talk about anxiety some more, fix these problems. That means spending more time in bed doesn't work for me. I could take drugs, again, you know, what's the point though, right? Anxiety, drowsiness, they're connected. Some people get angry, others get really depressed, and me, I just sweat and swoon. Probably that is drugs again, right? But they're endogenous now, that is the drugs that generate internally and naturally, instead of coming from pharmaceuticals or the Hells Angels. <laughs> so, but there are good reasons, right? Stress and torpor, historical reasons, personally, like my own karma, genetic predilection, sure here. Less than perfect choices, I maybe I shouldn't eat dinner, you know, half hour before going to bed at 10 o'clock at night, sure, I mean, these are things. And then watch the latest Netflix, that just it's so exciting, right? Like, okay, why do I have a lot of dreams? Uh, the thing is, though, really, you know, I believe that if I patiently persevere in the practice, really, I meditate, study the Dharma every day, while trying to live a relatively blame-free, more or less shame-free sort of existence, I'm steadfast in these ways, then maybe, just maybe, before I die, I'll get over even those particular hindrances. Like I mostly got over enmity. And whatever, I mean, I'm sort of okay now. Keep practicing. Probably someday I'll be that much more okay with a bit of luck and live long enough, maybe very okay. It's what a concept. I mean, it's like saying, okay, I could lose weight by exercising more and eating less. Uh, what a revolutionary view. That's basically the way the Buddha looked at things, though. He looked at things in a simple way. Right? Maybe this pragmatic approach here is applicable. Or I could doubt this. The fifth hindrance is doubt. I could just doubt it. I could have a choice here. 
right? What I'm saying, persevere, steadfast, don't really know, but go ahead, try it, or probably isn't going to work quite well. To doubt is definitely not recommended. Definitely named by the Buddha as a hindrance. Healthy skepticism, a discerning kind of intelligence, he advocated. But out and out doubt, no. And that's right. I mean, it should be. Right? It, should be, it, should, it should be discouraged because, I mean, it's one thing to ask questions, but it's quite another to dismiss and discredit the Dharma right out of hand without putting it to the test for yourself. Doubt at this level, it's, it's a profound absence of faith, and it's also, it's egregiously unscientific, right, to doubt like that, to deny the experimental value of your life, of any person's life, to dispute that existential bird breath that said, who said that there's no value in the example of life because there's nothing to be uncovered, right? To believe that there's nothing to be uncovered, nothing to learn, therefore nothing to share with those who will follow in your footsteps. This is so untrue, it's not even wrong. This doubt. It's not like believing, it's, it's like believing there was no question to begin with. Right? It was like saying, okay, there was never a question about this. It's just so, so cynical. It's not skeptical, it's cynical. Living in that questioning state that's not the same as being doubtful. Right? In fact, it's the opposite. It's giving the benefit of the doubt to the Dharma, giving it a try, putting it into practice. Let the burden of proof weigh down the shoulders of people who choose to feed their hindrances. Because stumbling though we may be, we're living to learn and to make things better. What we do matters a lot. Our behavior, our goodwill and our compassionate actions, they matter a lot more than our fleeting feelings. There's absolutely no doubt about that.